6. Lord King, the Culmination of Bullionism When the British government asked Parliament for a year's extension of the bank restriction in April 1802, it had to justify the renewal of suspension on some ground other than the war with France, since the Treaty of Amiens had been signed the previous month. Prime Minister Henry Addington, 1757 to 1844, argued that since the balance of payments remained unfavorable to Britain, the suspension of specie payments should be extended, presumably until the balance of trade reversed itself. When the renewal came up again in February of the following year, Addington again argued for an extension of the fiat system on the same grounds. He was answered trenchantly by the great opposition leader Charles James Fox, who pointed out that perhaps even it might happen that the unfavorable turn of the exchange against this country might be owing to the very restriction on the bank. Not only that, but Fox saw incisively that the outflow of gold was essentially a Gresham's Law situation, where money undervalued by the government flows inexorably out of circulation to be replaced by overvalued or bad money. He essentially showed that this process applies to paper fully as much as to bad gold. In 1772 to 1773, when there was a great quantity of bad money in the country, the course of exchange was then also much against us. As long as our currency continued bad, the exchange was against us. So it is now, because paper is not much better than bad gold. May it not therefore be expected that, as in the former case, when our currency was ameliorated, the course of exchange turned in our favor, so also if the bank now resumed its cash payments, the same favorable circumstances might attend the change? During this debate, a new voice entered the bullionist controversy, with Peter Lord King, 1776 to 1833, denouncing the restriction in a speech in the House of Lords on 22 February. Taking the lead of the bullionist forces, Lord King zeroed in on the increase of the quantity of paper money during the restriction as the culprit. From the time the restriction was first imposed, the course of exchange began to turn against this country in various proportions to the quantity of paper in circulation. In May, Lord King repeated these arguments in arguing against a bill to extend bank restriction in Ireland. Later, in May of 1803, King elaborated his views in a highly important pamphlet, Thoughts on the Restriction of Payments in Specie at the Bank of England and Ireland, and then followed with an enlarged second edition of the pamphlet the following year under the title Thoughts on the Effects of the Bank Restriction. Lord King's thoughts was widely read and highly influential, and with this pamphlet King took his place as the leader of the bullionist camp just as Thornton, who continued to support the renewal of restriction, was established as the leader of the moderate anti-bullionists. Lord King was a young nobleman of distinguished lineage. 
He was the great-grandson of Peter, the first Lord King, who became Lord Chancellor of the realm. The Whig and classical liberal tradition of the King family was emphasized by the fact that the first Lord King's mother was a cousin of John Locke, and that the first Lord King was a protégé of Locke and a leading Whig and member of Parliament. Peter King was educated at Eton and at Trinity College, Cambridge, taking his place as a follower of Charles James Fox and an important Whig in the House of Lords in 1800. In addition to his leadership of the hard money forces in Britain, Lord King, though a great landlord, was a lifelong militant enemy of the Corn Laws. A critic of the established church, King was a principal battler for the unpopular cause of emancipation of the Catholics of England, as well as an opponent of the oppression of the Catholics of Ireland. In 1829, Lord King wrote A Life of John Locke, revised and expanded into two volumes in the following year. Lord King began his thoughts with a chapter on paper money, Unfortunately, King accepted Smith's fallacious argument for paper money as providing a highway in the sky, but at least he rejected Smith's idea of an automatic reflux of any excess paper to the banking system. Instead, King applied the quantity theory, or to put it better, the supply and demand theory of money to the case of convertible paper. King, in a statement which Nassau Sr. later referred to admiringly as Lord King's principle, stressed that it was important for paper money not to be issued to any extent greater than its exact replacement of the quantity of gold coin in circulation, and that this equivalence is maintained by the immediate convertibility of paper into gold. King then moved to rebut, one by one, the pro-restrictionist arguments that the Bank of England notes were not excessive and therefore not depreciated. The idea that the bank had not exceeded some abstract proportion of money to industry or some arbitrary optimum money supply was effectively shot down, King demonstrating that there is no rule or standard by which the due quantity of circulating medium in any country can be ascertained, except the actual demand of the public. King then shows trenchantly that the demand for money, like the demand for any product, is variable and uncertain. The requisite proportion of currency, like that of every other article of use or consumption, regulates itself entirely by this demand, which differs materially in different countries and states of society, and even in the same country at different times. It is manifest that the proportion of circulating medium required in any given state of wealth and industry is not a fixed but a fluctuating and uncertain quantity, which depends in each case upon a great variety of circumstances, and which is diminished or increased by the greater or less degree of security or enterprise and of commercial improvement. The causes which influence the demand are evidently too complicated to admit of the quantity being ascertained by previous computation or by any process of theory. 
King goes on to conclude that if the above reasoning is well-founded, it must follow that there is no method of discovering a priori the proportion of the circulating medium which the occasions of the community require, that it is a quantity which has no assignable rule or standard, and that its true account can be ascertained only by the effective demand. Next, King was the first to see the importance of Thornton's devastating critique of his fellow anti-bullionists' extension of Smithian real bills doctrine, and he put the critique even more strongly. Putting their discount rates below the free market interest rate can permit unlimited extension of bank credit on real bills. Furthermore, the bank possesses no real means of distinguishing between real and fictitious bills, and merchants can always be induced to borrow far beyond real demands of the public by artificially low interest charged by the banks. In the case of inconvertible paper money, King concluded, there is no way to discover the real demand for money by the public, or to figure out when paper money is excessive or not. Without convertibility, paper circulation is deprived of this natural standard, and is incapable of admitting any other. Hence, banks or governments entrusted with the task of finding the optimum level of money and credit are doomed to committing perpetual mistakes. Building on Boyd's pioneering work and the contributions of Thornton, Lord King then set out to develop the culmination of the complete bullionist theory of inconvertible paper money, a theory consisting of a systematic and forceful development of supply and demand analysis. He first notes that inconvertible paper is subject to two distinct but related influences towards depreciation, want of confidence on the part of the public and an undue increase of the quantity of notes, in every instance of inconvertible currency, he notes, both factors have soon gone to work. How does one know, King went on, when depreciation of inconvertible currency has occurred? Walter Boyd had asserted that one test of depreciation was a rise of the free market bullion price higher than the official mint price. King reinforced Boyd's insight by pointing out that bullion value tends to be stable in the short run, making any deviation of the two the result of a change in the value of the paper. King also provides a rigorous grounding for Boyd's second proffered test, the depreciation of the pound compared to other currencies. For a specie-convertible currency cannot depreciate, since any surplus can be exported. But inconvertible paper cannot be exported, and will there remain in that country, and if multiplied beyond the demand, must be depreciated in the degree of its excess. Furthermore, in the course of commercial dealings, this increase of quantity is soon discovered, and prices are increased in proportion. A similar effect takes place in transactions with foreign currencies, according to the status of their respective currencies. 
King goes on to develop a concise statement of the purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates under inconvertible currencies. While in the above passage King appeared to adopt the mechanistic proportionality quantity theory, he made it clear later in the pamphlet that this proportionality, if it occurs at all, only does so in the long run. For King, like Boyd, was a complete bullionist, and presented by far the best and most developed statement of this position in this entire period. King demonstrates that the inflation process necessarily involves a redistribution of wealth and income. Developing hints of process analysis from Hume, King writes that the proportional effect of an increase in the quantity of paper money on prices is far from immediate, and that some time must elapse before the new currency can circulate through the community and affect the prices of all commodities. But while Hume hailed this interval as spurring business activity, King correctly focused on the coerced advantages that this process gives to the early, as opposed to the later, recipients of the new money. It is this interval between the creation of the new paper and the rise of prices which may be a source of advantage to the persons who obtain loans from the bank. The merchant, to whom the notes are immediately issued, employs them in the purchase of goods at the prices which they then bear. But by the very effect of these notes, when they are afterwards circulated, the price of the goods is enhanced, and the merchant has the advantage of this rise in addition to the ordinary profits of trade. If he is an exporting merchant, he will receive, beside the usual profit, the amount of the depreciation which will have taken place in the currency between the time of purchasing the goods and the arrival of the remittance in return. King also calls the depreciation of Central Bank of Ireland notes like an income tax, which levies not for the benefit of government, but of the proprietors of Irish bank stock. And on the Bank of England, he noted that the undue advantage that has been obtained by the bank in the exact degree of the excess of their notes has been more than offset by the loss and injury to the public, as in all cases of depreciated currency. Hence, an indirect tax is thus imposed upon the community, not for the benefit of the public, but of individuals. It is levied in the most pernicious manner, and is of all taxes the least productive in proportion to the loss and inconvenience sustained. In short, King recognizes that the privileged beneficiaries of inflation and depreciation are largely the central banks themselves and their stockholders, as well as merchants who borrow from these banks and exporters who benefit by the depreciation of foreign exchange. All these are bought at the expense of the public. King also perceptively notes that it is precisely these groups who had been the main apologists for the bank restriction. He suggests that these London and Dublin merchants had probably never read Hume, nor precisely traced the theoretical steps by which they obtained the privilege of bank inflation. 
But their experience has undoubtedly led them to the same conclusions, and there can be no doubt that since the period of the restriction, discounts have been obtained from the bank by commercial men with less difficulty, and that these accommodations, together with the profits derived from hence, have given their minds a strong bias in favor of the measure. Furthermore, Lord King's mordant analysis of the advantages accruing to the bank as against the public by inflation of its notes led him to denounce per se any exclusive privilege in issuing notes granted to the Bank of England. For such a privilege would be as unjust and impolitic as to grant a monopoly of any other branch of skill and industry to any private merchant or company. Tied in with his rejection of the mechanistic proportionality approach, Lord King conceded that real factors can have subordinate and temporary effects on depreciation and the exchange rate. Indeed, it is precisely this understanding of the temporary effects of real factors that helped lead King to reject the idea of strict proportionality, and hence of any precise quantitative measurement of the degree of depreciation or of the excess of paper money. As King wrote, nor will the most careful reference to the two tests of the price of bullion and the state of the exchanges enable us to ascertain in what precise degree a currency is depreciated, though the general fact of a depreciation may be proved beyond dispute. Indeed, he gently chided Boyd for unduly stressing such a measure of excess, and thereby having given an advantage to his opponents by insisting too much on the degree of depreciation. Finally, it is unfortunate that King followed Smith's and Thornton's confusion of bills of exchange and other evidence of debt with money, and rejected Walter Boyd's clear-cut distinction between them. Lord King's contribution immediately vaulted him to the front rank of bullionist theorists, and when David Ricardo entered the fray almost a decade later, he hailed King's booklet as having had a great influence on him. For some reason, however, King's vital contribution has been grievously overlooked by most later historians, and even in Nassau Sr.'s day, in the mid-1840s, Sr. found it necessary to chide posterity for neglecting Lord King's great achievement. Indeed, Senior lauded King's work as so full, and in the main so true an exposition of the theory of paper money, that after more than forty years of discussion there is little to add to it, or to correct. Senior's reminder was afterwards echoed by Henry D. MacLeod and by Francis A. Walker, and as late as 1911, Jacob Hollander in his famous resurrection of monetary theory between Smith and Ricardo briefly hailed King's pamphlet as a remarkable contrast to the prolix obscurity of Thornton's essay and the heated temper of Boyd's performance, and fitted to become, as it speedily did, the epitome of what had already been written in sound criticism and in reasonable interpretation of the bank's course, no less than the inspiration of future effort in the same direction. 
Yet, unaccountably, appreciation of King's contribution promptly dropped completely out of sight once again, only to be resurrected in the seminal dissertation of Professor Salerno. Perhaps the most important immediate impact of Lord King's thoughts was on Francis Horner, for Horner was promptly converted by the booklet from his previous moderate-moderate position to his permanent stance of moderate bullionist. The conversion probably rested not so much on King's theoretical analysis as on his thorough marshalling of the statistics of the restriction period, which convinced the theoretical agnostic Horner that the facts were on the side of the cause of price inflation and depreciation from an excessive issue of paper money. Reviewing King's thoughts in the July 1803 issue of the Edinburgh Review, Horner abandoned his previous policy agnosticism on the restriction to plumb squarely for redeemability. From the very first, he now wrote, there could be no doubt of the impolicy and injustice of the restriction. But whereas before he felt that the facts were too complicated to decide whether Boyd had been right about the restriction's inflationary impact on prices, Horner was convinced by King that Boyd had been right. He now concluded that, throughout all these changes, one uniform effect may be perceived, which, with the evidence by which it is proved, and the reasonings by which it is explained, is very ably and perspicuously described by Lord King. 7. The Irish Currency Question much of Lord King's strictures were directed against the Central Bank of Ireland as well as of England, and indeed during 1803, as the restriction was extended into the future with the resurgence of war with France, attention shifted to the rapid depreciation of the currency of Ireland. When Britain imposed the restriction in 1797, it also suspended specie payment for the Bank of Ireland and for the banking system of its Irish colony. It did so even though the Irish banking system was then in relatively sound and uninflated shape. The Bank of Ireland, however, quickly took advantage of its newfound privileges to inflate the supply of money and credit sharply, quadrupling its note circulation over the next six years. By 1803, therefore, the Irish pound had fallen over 10% below its gold standard parity of 108 to 100 with the English pound. It was particularly evident that the problem here was the Irish supply of paper money, and nothing else, since Belfast, in the English currency orbit, with no central bank of its own, remained at par with the English pound, and since the Dublin pound had depreciated to the same extent in Belfast as it had in London. When the extension of bank restriction came up in Parliament in February 1803, an extension defended by Thornton, a bullionist critique of the Irish situation was launched by Lord King, who continued the same discussion in May when an extension of Irish restriction arose in Parliament. 
With attention turned toward the Irish problem, the House of Commons in March 1804 established an Irish Currency Committee to investigate the matter. More precisely, the Select Committee on the Circulating Paper, the Specie, and the Current Coin of Ireland. The Bank of Ireland officials, desperately trying to defend their record, proclaimed with increasing absurdity that the depreciation of the Irish pound was due not to excessive issue, but to the mysteriously unfavorable balance of payments out of Ireland. The committee, of which Henry Thornton was a leading member, issued its report in June and gave short shrift to the anti-bullionist rationalizations. It adopted squarely the bullionist insight that the depreciation of the Irish pound was due to excessive issue of paper and extension of credit by the Bank of Ireland, and that this excessive issue had been made possible by the restriction. The committee report presaged the famous Bullion Committee report six years later, and was notable also for the virtual conversion of Henry Thornton, following Horner, into the moderate bullionist camp. The report declared that the great and effectual remedy for Irish currency ills was repeal of the Restriction Act, from whence all the evils have flowed. But it then drew back from such a radical solution to opt for an intermediary solution, for the Bank of Ireland at least to make its notes redeemable in the far less depreciated Bank of England currency. This, in fact, was also the intermediate solution proffered by Lord King. Above all, the committee warned that the Bank of Ireland must limit its paper issue in all times of unfavorable balances of trade, and that all the evils of a high and fluctuating exchange must be imputable to them if they fail to do so. Joining the bullionist camp around the Irish currency question were two important members of the Anglo-Irish establishment, a month before the appointment of the Irish Currency Committee, Henry Brooke Parnell, 1776-1842, the first Baron Congleton, published his pamphlet of Observations on the State of Currency in Ireland. Parnell, the son of Sir John, Chancellor of the Irish Exchequer, was educated at Eton and at Trinity College, Cambridge. An influential member of Parliament from 1802 on, Parnell's application of bullionist principles to the Irish question was largely influenced by Lord King. Parnell brought charges against the Bank of England of inundating the country with its paper, of diminishing the value of the greatest portion of the property of the country, of establishing a ruinous rate of exchange, and of bringing upon the state all the calamities attending a depreciated currency. As an intermediate remedy, Parnell also recommended King's proposal to make Irish paper redeemable in Bank of England notes. So compatible was Parnell's booklet with the Irish Currency Committee report that the third edition of Parnell's essay placed a summary of the committee's evidence in its appendix. 
The committee report and the King proposal were also backed by another member of the Anglo-Irish establishment. The young Irish attorney in London, John Leslie Foster, died 1842. In his pamphlet, An Essay on the Principles of Commercial Exchanges, 1804, Foster, the son of an Anglican bishop and graduate of Trinity College, Dublin, later became an Irish judge and a Tory member of Parliament in England. There is also the curious case of James Maitland, the 8th Earl of Lauderdale, 1759-1839, a Scottish attorney and first a Whig and then a Tory member of Parliament. On the one hand, Lauderdale was a fanatical underconsumptionist and opponent of saving, thereby anticipating Keynes in his Inquiry into the Nature and Origins of Public Wealth, 1804, and in his Argument against Debt Repayment and for Government Expenditure per se, Three Letters to the Duke of Wellington, 1829. On the other hand, Lord Lauderdale was a sound hard-money man, endorsing the Irish Currency Report in a hard-hitting pamphlet. Not only did Lauderdale agree that excessive paper issue of the Bank of Ireland had led to the depreciation of the Irish pound and the premium on gold, he went beyond the report to insist that outright contraction of Bank of Ireland paper was the only effective remedy for the existing problem. In his Thoughts on the Alarming State of the Circulation and on the Means of Redressing the Pecuniary Grievances of Ireland, 1805, it is certainly unusual for one person to be at the same time an arch-underconsumptionist and an ardent hard-money deflationist. While the King and Committee solutions did not triumph, the Irish bank officials apparently understood the situation far better than they had let on, for they soon managed to defuse the problem by pursuing harder monetary policies and thereby bringing the Irish pound back to par with England. 8. The Emergence of Mechanistic Bullionism John Wheatley after 1804, the Bank of England dampened its expansionist policy for a few years, and inflation and depreciation abated as well. As a result, the bullionist controversy about England and Ireland died down. Phase one of the great bullionist controversy was over. There had appeared on the scene three schools of monetary thought and opinion— First, the anti-bullionist apologists of the British government and the Bank of England, whose views can scarcely be dignified by the name of theory, and who simply denied that monetary issue had any relation to the evils of inflation and depreciation. Ranged against them were, second, the complete bullionists, headed by Lord King and by Walter Boyd, who trenchantly applied supply and demand for money analysis to the new conditions of irredeemable fiat money, and who attacked the Bank of England's over-issue as the cause of the evils, with real factors also playing a temporary and subordinate role. 
In the middle were, third, the moderates, consisting largely of Henry Thornton and Francis Horner, theoretical agnostics who claimed that either monetary or real factors might be responsible for any given inflation, and emphasized empirically and ad hoc which set of factors might be the culprits in any given situation. Starting as a moderate anti-bullionist, the empirical weight shifted quickly for Horner, at least, to enter the moderate bullionist camp by 1803. Before phase one had ended, however, a fourth school of thought, and the third strand of bullionism, had emerged. Mechanistic bullionism. The great error of mechanistic bullionism was not simply to neglect all real influences and to insist that monetary factors and monetary factors alone determined price levels and exchange rates. If that had been the only flaw, the error would have been a relatively minor one. The main problem was that the mechanists were also moved to neglect all other causal factors than the money supply, many of them of great importance. In brief, they neglected the demand for money, in all its subtle variations, and such vital distribution effects, even in the long run, as changes in relative assets and incomes, and changes in relative prices. In sum, the mechanists claimed that in the short run and in the long, the only causal factors on price and exchanges were changes in the quantity of money. Hence their erroneous and distorted view that changes in price levels are exactly quantitatively proportionate to changes in the quantity of money. The mechanistic bullionist view, presumably emerging in overreaction to the moderates, was first presented by a man who was neither a member of Parliament nor otherwise in the public eye, the attorney John Wheatley, 1772-1830. In his first of many contributions to monetary economics, Remarks on Currency and Commerce, 1803, Wheatley set forth the long-run bullionist and monetary approach in its starkest and most simplistic form. Any discussion of temporary adjustments or even temporal processes was cast aside in order to linger exclusively on final equilibrium states. To Wheatley, all export or import of gold was exclusively determined by its demand and price, that is, by monetary factors, and bullion prices and exchange rates were solely determined by monetary considerations. Real factors play no role in these matters, even temporarily or in the short run. Hence the effect of the supply of money on price levels or exchange rates is strictly and precisely proportionate. Overall prices move not only proportionately but also uniformly in levels, with no changes occurring in relative prices. Thus Wheatley. The increase of currency by paper must cause the same reduction in the value of money in proportion to the activity of its circulation as an increase of currency by specie. But if paper depreciate money, it must advance in similar proportion the price of articles of subsistence and luxury.
From these principles, it was easy for Wheatley to deduce that it was impossible for an expansion of the money supply ever to stimulate the economy, since, by definition, the wages of labor are augmented only in proportion to the increase of currency. And since wages rise proportionately to the money supply and to all other prices, they can purchase no greater quantity of products after the addition than before it. And therefore, no greater stimulus can in reality exist, and therefore no greater effect is likely to be produced by the deception. A heroic conclusion, no doubt, and surely true in the long run. But such blithely dogmatic statements omit the whole point of monetary inflation and its short-run stimulus. For example, making prices rise faster than wage rates. Moreover, since Wheatley had an exclusively long-run and therefore monetary theory of exchange rates under inconvertibility, he again blithely assumed that the value of any given money was always and everywhere equal, that is, in the long-run equilibrium, and that fiat money exchange rates always trade at precisely their purchasing power parities to their respective monetary purchasing powers. Hence, for Wheatley, not only was a depreciated exchange rate and a premium on specie bullion an unmistakable system of currency depreciation, it also provided an exact measure of that depreciation. In contrast, King and Boyd, let alone Thornton, only saw currency depreciation when such phenomena existed for any considerable time, Boyd, or were long-continued, King. And neither of the latter claimed that such premia or discounted exchange rates provide a precise measure of depreciation. While John Wheatley did not enjoy anything like the prominence of his fellow debaters on bullionism, he was by no means an insignificant figure. He was born in Kent to a prominent landed and military family of the county, his father William was a high sheriff and deputy lieutenant of Kent, an older brother, William, served as a major general in the French wars, and a younger brother, Sir Henry Wheatley, was attached for many years to the royal court. Wheatley received a B.A. from the aristocratic Christchurch, Oxford in 1793, and was then admitted to the bar. His wife, Georgiana, was the daughter of William Lushington, prominent London merchant and a member of Parliament for the City of London, and brother of Sir Stephen Lushington, formerly president of the Great East India Company. Oddly enough, William Lushington, as chairman of the Committee of the Merchants of London, had petitioned the Bank of England in March 1797 to be more expansionist in its discount policy. Wheatley's remarks were attacked in the Edinburgh Review by the prominent Whig leader Henry Brougham on familiar Thorntonian grounds. But while Wheatley followed up his pamphlet with the first volume of An Essay on the Theory of Money and Principles of Commerce, 1807, his timing was poor, since there was little interest in the bullionist controversy at that time. 
Wheatley compounded his tactical problems by writing nothing on money for the next nine years, during a time when the bullionist controversy was at its height. For all these reasons, Wheatley's stance was largely overlooked, until in 1809 David Ricardo assumed the leadership of the mechanistic bullionist camp. Wheatley's influence, furthermore, was scarcely helped by his being in chronic financial difficulties virtually all his life. He acted from time to time as agent for the Lushington family in their West India dealings, but financial troubles sent him wandering abroad, and the publication of the second volume of his essay in 1822 was followed promptly by migration to India, where he continued in financial distress, and thence to South Africa, with similar problems. But throughout these problems and wanderings, he continued to publish pamphlets calling ardently for freedom of trade. John Wheatley's exclusive emphasis on the money supply and unitary price levels foreshadowed the modern severe monetarist and macroeconomic split between the monetary and real realms. More pointedly, his mechanistic emphasis on the price level also foreshadowed the unfortunate Fisherine, Chicagoite, and later monetarist preoccupation with stabilizing the price level and with fanatically opposing any and all changes in such levels. Even in his early books of 1803 and 1807, Wheatley denounced the alleged evils of falling prices as well as of inflation, and indeed claimed that falling prices were even more damaging. Indeed, the influence of Wheatley's early tracts was gravely weakened by his being soft-core and timid in drawing any policy conclusions from his hardcore analysis. Instead of returning to the gold standard, Wheatley could only suggest the withdrawal of note-issue powers from the country banks and the redemption of all small banknotes under five pounds. In his 1807 work, he urged that long-term contracts be made in accordance with an index number of price levels, and in his later works, when this plea went unheeded, he began to grow hysterical about the alleged evils of price declines and their injury to the poor. By his 1822 volume, Wheatley had gone so far as to urge the postponement of resumption of specie payments until more supplies might enter the country to prevent prices from falling. Indeed, by this point, Wheatley was ready to abandon the gold standard in his frenzied opposition to falling prices. Yearning for fiat paper stabilized in value by the government, Wheatley wrote, if paper were kept without increase or decrease, it would be a better measure of value and medium of exchange than gold. And by the time of his last work in 1828, written in South Africa, Wheatley called only for fiat paper expansion of the money supply, else irremediable poverty is fixed upon as our eternal fate.
In this way, as in the case of all too many monetarists and mechanistic quantity theorists, Wheatley began as an ardent hard-money bullionist and was driven over the years by his frenetic hatred of deflation to wind up as a fiat-money inflationist.